0: You know, holidays have a way of making ordinary things special. you notice this? So I just want to take the 4th of July as an example. So like on the 4th of July, you have like these, these ordinary objects called fireworks. I mean, they're just explosives that go off, and in some ways they're just ordinary. You set those off on the 4th of July, and all of a sudden, they become patriotic. They like they get to take on all the meaning of American freedom when you set off fireworks, ordinary fireworks, on the 4th of July. They just take on something special. You know what happens when you set off fireworks on July 5th? You're just annoying. That's what happens when you set them off. They go back to being ordinary and annoying. July 4th, special. July 5th, annoying, ordinary. That's kind of what happens in today's story. We're going to step into the next part of Mark's gospel where we step into a holiday, a special moment in Jewish history where they celebrate this particular meal. And everything in that moment takes on special meaning because of that holiday. We're going to step into Mark chapter 14. We'll pick up with verse 12 and read to verse 25. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, "'Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover?' So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, "'Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. "'Follow him. "'Say to the owner of the house he enters, "'the teacher asks, "'Where is my guest's room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples?' He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. And while they were reclining at the table, eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied. One who dips the bread into the bowl with me, the Son of Man will go just as, as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is a special moment in the story of Jesus. And it happens on a holiday that is a special season for the Jewish people. This is the moment where they celebrate the Passover. This is that moment where they celebrate something God did long ago, but every year they remember it. And so as the disciples sit there that night around the table, like many Jews in the city and around the Mediterranean world, they are remembering two things. Two things are going through their heads. They're remembering two things. Here's the first one as they sit around the Passover table. At Passover, they remembered when God rescued his people from slavery. A long time ago, God decided that he wasn't going to give up on humanity and he said that I, and he chose a man named Abram. Eventually his name became Abraham and he said all the promises of a new humanity will come through this guy's family. And then that promise, that got passed down to Isaac and then Jacob and then the promise kept going through the family. Now eventually we know that family showed up in Egypt as a way of saving them from a devastating famine. And they began to prosper in Egypt. Until a new king came around, a new pharaoh, who didn't know anything of this family. And this family that grew into this large nation of Israel, living in Egypt, became oppressed and became the slaves of the Egyptians. And they were slaves for hundreds of years. And year after year they would call out to God for mercy, the God who gave promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, hoping against hope that that God would do something to rescue them. And then one year he did. He sent Moses. He sent Moses into the courts of Pharaoh. And it didn't take long until the people of God were coming through the Red Sea. And those waters were parted. And they walked through on dry land. And then Pharaoh's army, this wicked king, comes behind God's people. And what happens? The water falls on them as the enemy is destroyed. And that, that event was remembered year after year in the Passover. Because it was the Passover meal that launched the rescue mission. It was that moment where they killed an animal, put the blood on the doorpost, and the angel of death came through. And if they, the angel saw the blood, then the people were saved. And guess who had the blood? God's people. The Jews did. And so year after year, they would, they would celebrate the Passover, and they would remember that time when God rescued them. And what we see is that that story, that story gets played out, it gets rehearsed over and over in the history of Israel, where the people sing songs about that moment hundreds of years before when God did something special. It's very much like what we do in the United States. I mean, 1776 is a long time ago, but even in 2020, we are still celebrating 1776, something very similar with the Jewish people as they celebrate the Passover, celebrating God's rescue. I just want to give you a couple examples of where this shows up in the Psalms. This is like the the hymn book of the Jewish people. We'll take Psalm 78 first. Just listen here as they would would have sung this uh, with each other. Psalm 78, verses 12 through 16. He did miracles in the sight of their ancestors in the land of Egypt and the region of Zoan. He divided the sea and led them through. He made the water stand up like a wall. He guided them with the cloud by day and with light from the fire all night. He split the rocks in the wilderness, and he gave them water as abundant as the seas. He brought streams out of a rocky crag and made water flow down like rivers. You know, every time they got together and they sang songs like that, they were declaring that our God loves us. Our God's love lasts forever. There's actually one psalm where that refrain is on repeat. And it just so happens in that song, as they are singing God's praises and saying, His love endures forever, part of the song rehearses, it retells the story of the Exodus, where God saved His people, rescued them from slavery. Listen to this Psalm 136, just verses 10 through 15. To Him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, His love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, his love endures forever. And with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, his love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder, his love endures forever. And brought Israel through the midst of it, his love endures forever. But swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea, his love endures forever. Every year they celebrated the Passover, they retold this story of rescue. And there's one moment in a very small verse in the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea, where we see just how intimate that relationship was between Israel and their God. Take a look, Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. This was an intimate act of love and faithfulness. And so as the disciples sat around that meal that night... With these ordinary emblems taking on the full significance of the Passover, they're remembering God's rescue. Oh, what a moment that evening. But they also knew the rest of the story. So they did come out of Egypt, and it was worth praising God for. But it didn't take long before the people started sinning again, and they started spiraling downward. And eventually, God sent them into exile. The big one was to Babylon. They had lived in the promised land. The temple had been built, but they had sinned and they had, they had polluted the land with wickedness and with idolatry. And so God sent them away to a foreign land, to a foreign enemy, and their world was turned upside down. No longer did they carry, the, uh, hold the promised land. No longer did they have the temple where God dwelt. Now everything was shattered, they were in exile. But even there, they would celebrate the Passover in their own way. And you know what they would do? They would remember. They would retell the story of God rescuing them. And you know what else they would do in that moment? They'd do the second thing the Passover would come to represent. They'd do this. They looked forward to the day when God would rescue his people again. You see, they sat in exile, and around the Passover meal, they would say, but God's going to do it again. God did it before, he's going to do it again, and they would just wait for the day when God would bring them out of exile. And there were some prophets saying that he would. A real famous one, Ezekiel, you may have heard of him. A real famous prophecy where Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel carries the word of God to the people, and it's a promise of bringing them back from exile. Look at this. Imagine hearing this promise in exile. Ezekiel 37, one of the most famous passages, verses 21 through 23. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land. On the mountains of Israel, they will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offenses, for I will save them from all their sinful backsliding, and I will cleanse them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. And you know, God did bring them back out of exile. He did. They came back and they began to rebuild the temple. And it didn't take long for the people to start mess up, messing up again. And it didn't take long for foreign enemies to, to now invade the land and take over. No longer were they just taking over the land and then taking them out of the land. Now they just stayed in the land and the invaders came and took over and occupied. It was, it was an occupation. And the land was full of oppression from a foreign enemy. And for years, hundreds of years before Jesus showed up, the people of God again are saying, when will God show up? You see, it looked like the exile had ended. They had returned, but all of a sudden they were again in exile, except they were now in exile on their own land. And they were waiting for the deliverance and the vindication of Israel. One day God would do something. And you know, at the end of the Bibles we have... It ends with the prophet Malachi, around 400 B.C., that is before Jesus. And we don't get the New Testament until about 40 to 50 A.D., A.D., 40, 50. So we got about 450 years there where we don't have any writings in our current Bibles. But there was a lot of writing happening among the Jewish people where they were hoping one day God was going to do it again. And they would write it down, and they'd envision, what's he going to do? And just a few decades before Jesus showed up, in Palestine, Rome, the foreign occupator, you have Jews beginning to write that God's going to do something. and He's going to do something big. And they thought he would do it with a military. I want you to just listen to one of those writings. So I'm going to show you a, a volume. This is a, a one of a two-volume set. I have in no way read all of these extra-biblical Jewish writings, but I want to share with you one. And so I just I want you to just see how extensive. This is one of two volumes. It's really thick. If you're listening at home, just imagine a two-and-a-half-inch, three-inch book, and there's two of these. So it's a lot of writings that are happening over those few hundred years. The Jews are envisioning God doing something again. And one of those writings is called the Psalms of Solomon. And this is just written a few decades before Jesus shows up, in the first century B.C., so Rome would already have been there, Herod would be king, and they're envisioning a day when God would kick out those Gentiles. And I want you to hear how violent it is. I want you to hear how, how full of military imagery. This is a purging that God will do. And you know they're hoping it would happen with Jesus. But I want you to, I want you to hear this. So we're going to have it on the screen, but I want you to, I'm just going to hold the book as well. We're going to read Psalm of Solomon, the 17th Psalm. We'll start at Verse 21. See, Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel in the time known to you, God. Undergird him with strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her to destruction. In wisdom and in righteousness to drive out the sinners from the inheritance, to smash the arrogance of sinners like a potter's jar and he will have gentile and we and he will have gentile nations serving him under his yoke and he will glorify the lord in a place prominent above the whole earth and he will purge jerusalem and make it holy as it was even from the beginning and he will be a righteous king over them taught by god there will be no unrighteousness among them in his days for all shall be holy and their king shall be the lord messiah what a powerful powerful writing No wonder the people, as Jesus walks around performing miracles and declaring the kingdom of God is near, no wonder the people think their military leader has arrived. No wonder, as John tells us in chapter 6, the people wanted to put a crown on his head after he feeds the 5,000. This was the guy they were looking for. And so on that evening, on that evening, as they sat around the bread and the Jews celebrating the Passover, knowing that Jesus is claiming to be king, they're hoping maybe tomorrow Tomorrow, tomorrow, the victory comes. Maybe, maybe just after this meal, he's kicking out the Gentiles. He's going to purge Jerusalem. The military that we haven't seen yet is going to come in and do its job. You can imagine all the hope sitting in that moment. And so that means that the bread and juice takes on all this different meaning. But then Jesus starts talking about betrayal. He starts saying that his that, that things are broken, that he's giving up his blood. This, isn't way, this is not the way a king talks. And you and I know as the readers that Jesus has been predicting his death for a long time, and no one has understood it. And even in this moment, he is telling them that he must die. But he gives them a meal. He gives them a meal as a way of declaring something very significant, taking all the hopes that they are carrying with them, that... that that the remembering of what God has done and the looking forward to what God will do, all of that is sitting in the moment. And then something happens. Let me Take a look. I just want to summarize it this way. Let's go to that next slide. When Jesus breaks the bread and pours the drink and says, this is the blood of the covenant, he is declaring the final exodus. He is fulfilling the story of Israel in leading humanity out of exile through his death and resurrection. This is the moment that Israel is rescued. As he declares, this is my body, this is my blood, he says, this is the story of Israel finally fulfilled. You are coming out of exile. But you see the twist, don't you? It's not going to happen with a purging of Jerusalem. It won't look like Psalms... Uh, Psalm of Solomon chapter 17. It's going to look very different. That's the twist. We'll say it this way. Jesus will use a Roman cross, not a military, to lead the final exodus. Love and faithfulness will defeat death and evil. Jesus is going to let evil do its worst. He will drive He will drive sin to its conclusion. He will take this thing all the way to death, and you know what will happen? He'll beat it. He'll beat it. It will be love that wins, it will be faithfulness that wins. And so, in that moment, full of so much meaning, the bread and juice take on all the significance, not just food and drink. The disciples are being caught up in a much larger story than they ever imagined. They can't see, they can't see the kind of exodus Jesus is leading but they are being caught up in a larger story. And Jesus will soon call them to take that story to the ends of the world. Not just for Israel, but for everyone. Now, what I love about this, we got to get real excited about this, is I think that's what has application for us. Like, I think that's the thing that gets on the ground for me and you, is that as Jesus was catching up the disciples into a larger story through these ordinary emblems on this significant moment, we too can get caught up in that larger story. So let's just make that real practical when it comes to communion. So here's the way we want to start this application. It's more communion. It is more. It is more than bread and juice. It's more than bread and juice. Here's another way we might say it. Let's take a look. I'm going to summarize it this way. On the communion table. And I don't mean this metaphorically. I literally mean the communion table, like this one right here in front of you, okay? If you're at home, people at home, they may have communion in front of them. I mean that communion table in front of you. On the communion table, the bread and juice are more than food and drink. They symbolize God's larger story of love and rescue. And we are caught up into that story. See, this is a story of forgiveness. That means that we are called to be forgiveness people. This is a story of mercy. It means we're supposed to be merciful. This is a story of kindness. That means we need to be defined as kind people. This this becomes our story. That's much more than bread and juice. You take this out of this room in this moment, and you give this out to some kids on the street on Monday morning, not going to have the significance. But in this moment, we're caught up into a larger story. And Paul, the Apostle Paul had a way of describing that story. And one of my favorite passages of Scripture, it's Colossians 1. Look at how he describes the story that all followers of Jesus have been caught up in. Take a look, Colossians 1, verses 13 through 14. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When you and I take this meal, We are declaring with our bodies, our senses, we're forgiveness people. We're mercy people. We're love people. That's what we're saying. Because this would be our story, too. Now, where this gets difficult for us is that this is, like, not the only story. The the communion table is not the only story we tell. We tell all kinds of stories to ourselves. Let me just give you an example of some stories that you may have told yourself. I know I have struggled with telling these to myself sometimes sometimes. These are just a few stories that we might tell ourselves. We're the sum of our talents. Sometimes we tell ourselves the story that we're insignificant or we're not worthy of love. Or in the opposite direction, we deserve happiness above everything else. What we do is we sit at night when it's dark and we tell ourselves we're not worthy or no one really loves us. And we look back to our past and we think of all the bad things that have happened and we just tell that story over and over and over the communion table tells a different story. And so we need to keep that in mind that if we're not careful, we're going to pick up all these other different stories and we're going to let those define us. And we have to be very careful not to let that happen. You are worthy. The communion table says that when Jesus led the final exodus, he said, you're so valuable, I'm bringing you with me. I'm inviting you into this. You can come be a forgiveness person too. You can come have the life I have. That's a great story. That's a love story. Now, something that we may be struggling with in our day that might be unique to our current moment is that we might be picking up stories from a lot of different places really quickly, well beyond anything we were ever meant to do. Let me say it this way. I think this might be a struggle we have. I know I do. We can also be tempted to bounce from the latest headline to the latest trend to the latest social media post. And when this happens, we feel like we're in the know about a lot of things. We get to be a lot of places and know a lot of things, but the danger is that when we're bouncing from thing to thing, expanding ourselves out farther and farther, we become increasingly unanchored. You know on my computer, I can know what's going on across the country, the world, in our town, and with some of my closest friends, and I can get saturated with the latest and greatest and be a part of every trend well beyond where my feet are. You know where my feet were this week? Roanoke Rapids. That's where they were. You know where my mind went? They went into other people's homes this week because I was looking at social media posts. I was in board meetings. I was in city halls across the country. I was in the I was in DC. I was in the White House this week. Do you know I was all those places this week. I had expanded myself well beyond what I was ever meant to to grow to. This reminds me, when we get to this point where we are trying to be up on everything and we are we're trying to be in everyone else's business, you know what happens? I think we, I think we start to, uh, we're in danger of becoming like a, a really big weed. Now, that, I'm not talking about like a drug. I'm talking about like a literal weed, okay? I'm going to put a picture up on the screen here, all right? We pulled this weed from our garden a few weeks ago. Uh, we had been on vacation. It got really tall, like it was like a corn stalk. We yank that thing out. That feel like that's kind of what happens when we're trying to bounce around from the latest to the greatest. We're trying to touch every social media post, be in every debate that exists, and comment or at least read every comment out there. We're extending ourselves well beyond our influence or maybe where our character can hold us. And so we just grow and we expand. You see the root system on that weed? For those that can't see this, that weed is about six feet tall the root system is about six inches. And that's what happens. When we start picking up everybody else's story and we let Jesus, the story of Jesus' rescue fade into the background, we are in danger of a shallow and weak inside. We don't want to be, we don't want to be shallow people. And that can happen when we are trying to pick up every other story but this one. There's a lot of stuff going on in our town this week. There was a lot of stuff going on in our town. There's a lot of stuff going on in our nation right now. I feel like every day we're getting new pieces of information. And so we have stories flying. And not only do we have the big official story maybe in our town or nation, but you know there are rumors that go along with every official story. And so you have multipliers along the way. And in five years, you know what's going to happen? This story is going to stay. This story at the communion table will still be here. You know what's going to happen in 10 years? After all the stories that we are trying to live in right now fade, you know what story will stay? The story of Jesus' rescue. In 100 years, when all of us, I hope, are living with Jesus and in this community of believers, you know what story is going to remain in 100 years? This one. And if this church has got a track record like it does, like it'll be a whole new set of people. There'll be someone else on this stage, and they may just be pointing at this table in 100 years saying this is the story that will last. So I want us to be very careful that we do not define ourselves by all the other stories flying around in our world and forget the story. So let's take it to a next step. This is going to be real practical here, but it's going to require your attention literally. Next step this week, pay attention to what stories you're listening to most. Like, just be aware. What stories are you picking up and telling yourself? It can become very easy to forget the story of God's love through Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection. So we want to anchor on the story as who we are. We do it as a church, we do it individually, and we come out a better people. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that as a people who follow your son, that we would be rooted in the story that we celebrate at communion. That the bread and the juice, that it would anchor us in the story of rescue, going from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light, so that this week. We will be defined more by our kindness, our forgiveness, and our mercy than our bitterness and mean words. And would we grow up in the likeness of Jesus, not only as a community, but individually, and would you take our roots and grow them deep? Because we know the story. Help us as we take communion today. Would you take these emblems and would you help them to remind us of your story. We thank you for communion and we thank you for this meal every week. And now we pray under the power of the King who died and came back to life, Jesus the Christ. Together we say,